It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back. Looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. It's one out. He's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Sheldon Noisy is now joining us after batting practice. And we get to talk to him for a first time. How you doing? I'm Chris Townsend. I do all the uh, I do all the A stuff. Hey, you'll, Chris. You'll get to know me well. How are you? I'm doing well. Yourself? Uh, it was. Uh, I'm doing well, and I got to think for you, pretty cool. Starting your career at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, it was it was an unbelievable experience. What was it like when you walked down to that field? I don't I don't really know how to describe it. Just got chills down my spine, and you know, take it all in for a little bit, and then it was just sitting around and anxious I was just ready to get out there and get going so I didn't have didn't have to think about it just play you know you guys you play in the minor leagues and it's your dream ever since you were a little kid to get to the big leagues when Fran tells you down there that you're going to the big leagues what was that moment like for you and who's the first person you called it was surreal it just honestly I didn't believe it at first you know you just it takes a second to kind of realize what's what's going on and what just happened Took a deep breath and grabbed my phone, walked outside, and I called my dad. It was the first person I called, and second was my fiance. Uh, never forget those phone calls, you know, to him, fiance, and then my mom and my brother were the only people that I called, and I remember each phone call like it was yesterday. What did they say? My dad was at a loss for words and emotional, which he's, I think I've seen him cry a handful of times in his life. and. <laughs> I could just hear him choked up on the phone, and then it made me emotional and calling Cadence and the excitement in her voice, and she was just ready to get everything packed up so she could get out there, and just, it was crazy, absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, because, you know, we really don't have this in other sports, right? I mean, you get drafted in the NFL, you're going to play in preseason games, you know, NBA, same thing for the most part. You might have a guy come up from, from the G League. But in baseball, we have it. You got, you know guys that got called up. You know about with their fan. There's just something romantic with baseball and the call-ups. It's, it's something special and so wonderful you got to be a part of it. Absolutely. I'm very thankful. And you're getting thrown into a pennant race. That's another thing. It's not like you're coming up and teams 20 games under 500 not playing for something. You're here to help get this team into the postseason. What does that mean to you? It means everything. I just got to make the most of my opportunities when I do get in there, knowing that, you know, we're here to win. And that's all that matters, whatever it takes, any way that I can help, whether it's defensively, offensively, hopefully both. But 
just whatever they need me to do, hopefully I can get in there and get it done and help us win some ball games. So you played shortstop in college. You're playing third base in the minors, but obviously there's this guy named Matt Chapman over there at third base. How easy was it for you when they say, hey, why don't we have you over at second base? How easy was that for you to make that change? Oh, extremely easy. For me, it didn't matter. I just, whatever it took to get up here, wherever they wanted me to play. And, I mean, Chapman is absolutely phenomenal over there. Um, They told me to move around a little bit there, played a little left, kind of everywhere. For me, it really didn't matter. I just wanted the opportunity and the chance to get up here, whatever it took. Yeah, the number one thing we're seeing in baseball is versatility because with so many pitchers on the roster, you got to have versatility, and that's the way to get to the big leagues, and that's the way to stay in the big leagues. Have you really paid attention how they've used Chad Bender and also Mark Canna up here as they've played so many different positions? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they've they both moved around. Bender's, you know, he's an infield outfield guy. He can play anywhere, pinch hit, anything. Canna, same thing. You could put him over at first if you knew him anywhere in the outfield, DH, pinch hit, anything. I mean, it just whatever gives yourself the most opportunity to get in the game, I think your value just rises. So inside, what did it feel like when you got that first hit and, and, you, and, and you get that out of the way? <sighs> Unbelievable. Uh, just took a deep breath and kind of let everything come back together and just kind of laying back from the moon, you know, standing on second, looking around like, holy cow, I just hit a ball between the lines and we scored. And I'm at Yankee Stadium. Holy, <laughs> this is nuts. I know. When you see those pinstripes, you're just like, wow, this place is really cool. And because and that's the one thing you don't want to have, you know, in the back of your mind, like, I got to get my first hit. I got to get. Now that you got that out of the way, are you a little more clear when you, when you get up to the plate or did that not affect you? I, I think so. I haven't been in there yet, but I would. I would assume it'd make it a little bit easier, you know, you kind of go through the first game and it's like, okay, you know, I was just nervous and anxious or whatever. And then you get to the second game and it wasn't a good game either. And it's like, all right, now I got to find a way to help my team win and uh, just kind of battle what I was able to get a knock and hopefully moving forward and just go back and play baseball. You know, there's a, there's a lot of information here at the big league level. How different is all this information and everything that you have versus what you guys had down the minor leagues in AAA? I don't think it's anything crazy. It's more just getting on there and using that information, you know, just taking advantage of it with the resources and everything like that. You know, the minor leagues a little more limited, but up here, I mean, you have anything and everything. And uh, you just got to get in there and put in put in the time to realize, you know, kind of how guys are going to pitch you or where, where to even play defensively. I mean, just anything and everything, but you have to use the equipment or else it's – it has no value. Some guys love the analytics, and some guys love the technology. Some guys are just see ball, hit ball. Where do you think you are? Uh, personally, I like to just dig in the box, see it, and just let it go, you know, and just kind of base it off of that. If I'm hitting too many pop-ups, try to level off a little bit, vice versa. And um, The analytics can come into play on that for sure, the video especially, being able to watch video and just – say, you know, this is where that ball was or get a side view of, you know, where your swing is, where you're going into the zone, if you're late, early, under, on top. Um, But I'd like to think for the most part, I try to just keep it as simple as possible, just see it and hit it, get a good pitch to drive and put a good swing on it. We just talked with Bob Melvin about this, and you were down there all year. Just how crazy the amount of home runs, more than 2,000 more home runs were hit in 2019 than 2018 in AAA. Can you speak to that? What was it like down there with just all the balls flying out of the yard? 
I know you're not out of any game or you're not safe with any lead. I mean, I don't know how many times we put up five or six runs in an inning down there. It was it was crazy. Um, but it's just coming to the point, I think the ball's helped a little bit, you know, but you just got to make contact. I think that's the biggest thing is now it's just making contact, squaring balls up. The more you do that, the more it's going to fly. Um, just eliminating swings and misses, but I mean, it keeps you in any game offensively. And I think that's pretty special. Yeah, when you're hitting 11 home runs, you're going to be in every game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you think about uh, being here for the first time in Oakland? This is actually my second time. I came to the Bay Bridge Series uh, two spring trainings ago, and so I was here very shortly. But to be back here and see it now it's in September is totally different, you know. It's not just a uh, exhibition game. This is the real deal. But uh, I'm excited to be here and look forward to getting out on the field and playing. Yeah, it's it's uh, this is the best time of the year, you know, when, when you when you're coming up to a team that is in it. I mean, it, it's a it's a really really special time, and the fact that this front office has called your name to come help get this team to the playoffs. What does that mean to you? Oh, it means everything. I'm I'm very very happy to be here, and I can't thank them enough for you know giving me the opportunity to come up and try to be an impact on the team. Uh, like I said, hopefully I can just get in there and get the job done, whatever they ask me to do. Well, thank you for stopping by. We truly appreciate you taking the time. And uh, going to be a lot of fun down the stretch here. It's a, it's, it's a race to the finish line and a race to get in one of those spots for the wild card. And you could be playing playoff baseball. That's the plan. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live as we are celebrating the 17th anniversary of the 20-game winning streak for the Oakland Athletics, which at the time was an American League record. And the big hero, Scott Hatterberg, joins us here on A's Cast Live. Scott, how are you? I'm great, Chris. I can't believe 17 years, man. I am getting old. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Yeah, I was thinking about them. I'm like, that, that really was 17 years ago? My God. I know. It, it, gosh, yeah. Okay, let's just forget the 17 part. Let's just say, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that was a great time. What? Well, you just think about what a special moment that was in that game against Kansas City. It was a wild game. You have a lead. You give it up. And then just take us through what it was like for you. You come out as a pinch hitter, and you hit the biggest home run of your life. Well, it was, you know, it was kind of a slow burn the way the whole thing went. I mean, it almost took, you know, the entirety of a month to build. So you were building this thing, and then we get out to this huge lead, uh, you know, 11 nothing, and we had – Tim Hudson on the hill. I mean, it all looked like uh, it was going to line up to be just a you know a nice uh, easy party, and it uh, just it just slowly slipped away, which was the absolute worst. And at the time, I wasn't playing, so you know I was kind of on cruise control. Next thing I know, I'm in the cage trying to figure out what clothes I'm going to have to face. Uh, you know, hitting the ball out was the last thing on my mind. But my goodness, uh, to, to cap off that whole streak, that whole run with all those guys was unbelievable, unbelievable throw. Uh, and it was just big home run and big hit after big hit, uh, you know, and, and all your teammates, Miguel Tejada, it seemed like there was a different hero all the time. What was it like just to be a part of something where for 20 straight games, you felt like every single time you showed up to the yard, it was win day? It, it really did. I mean, that's what it felt like. It felt like we were going to find a way. And there were times, there was a lot of drama, especially towards the end there, where we were behind uh, we were behind a lot. We were very comfortable in close games or even playing from behind. Uh, so there's that inner confidence that I think just winning breeds. And plus, it was you know a talented young group that just didn't know any better. So me being an older veteran guy, God, it was contagious. Uh, so a lot, lot of similarities in some ways to the team now. So 
they win a lot of one-run games, and I think if you do something like that, you got to be comfortable in those situations, and we were. And I think what's crazy, too, is you had three straight walk-offs. You had win yeah. number 18 and 19 was Miguel Tejada, and then you're number 20. I mean, to think that's that's how you capped it off was walk-off hits, that that just adds to the drama. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, there's there's nothing like seeing that stadium completely packed at that time. I, you know, to have it that packed and then have it be so dramatic, it was, it was so loud, it was just – it was unbelievable, but there was, there was, like you said, there was a new guy every night. But, uh, man, we didn't make it look easy, though. I know that's for sure. Yeah, and just, you know, what a special group that was. When you think about Barry Zito would go on to win the Cy Young Award, Miggy would win the MVP. You guys had a very tight-knit special group that season. Talk about what it was like in that clubhouse. It was, you know, like I said, I was, a, I was an older guy, and these were young, up-and-coming stars. And I, I, I knew the talent, but I knew more than that. It was like a fraternity. These guys, once the game left, I'd been on a lot of teams where, you know, the final out is made and it's 25 different limos. That just wasn't the case. We were like, what room are you going to be in? And we'd all, I mean, we hung out. These guys hung out. They were friends. Uh, so it, it went beyond the baseball field, and I think it translated to what happened on the field. Uh, this, this team pulled for each other. They believed in one another. Uh, it was fun playing. I mean, it really, really was fun. And that could be hard to say at times in the big leagues, but it truly was and made it awesome. Well, it was so special. They they did a best-selling book about it, and then an Oscar-nominated movie, Moneyball, the book and the movie, and you're definitely – you were a part of it. What was that like to go to the movie theater and you're like, Scott Hadbury, I'm, I'm a big part of this movie and this book. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was be, that's still beyond surreal. I mean, uh, I remember the days I spoke to Michael Lewis, the guy who wrote the book, for months. Uh, he told me he was writing a book, and at the time we weren't getting a whole lot of fans. We didn't work the A's of, uh, you know, that we ended up becoming. So I thought, my gosh, this doesn't seem like a, a very lucrative idea. But I stuck with him, and you know, ended up finding out this guy's a genius, and uh, he wrote some cool, interesting things. I learned a lot more about what Billy Bean's plan was, and kind of a uh, pioneering aspects of the game he was bringing. Um, and next thing you know, Brad Pitt's calling you and saying, hey, we want you in this stupid movie. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> it was such a whirlwind uh, and out of left field that uh, I still pinch myself. But what a thrill to be a part of. Brad Pitt's giving you a call? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I had him and Soderbergh calling me daily. Uh, it was crazy. But, uh, yeah, no, it was I mean, I still don't. I still can't figure that one out. I kept their numbers though. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, how much, how much of the book and how much of the movie are actually accurate when it comes to you? Well, I, you know, for me, yeah, it, a lot of it was pretty accurate. I mean, um, you, you know, there was it was it was hard adjusting to first base. There was a lot of doubt than that. Uh, you know, the biggest part of it, I, you know, the takeaway that I didn't like. Uh, would be just the way Art Howe was portrayed. We really liked Art. Um, I, I don't think it was quite as volatile, but it is a Hollywood movie, so you kind of have to have some kind of villain or uh, you know something of that nature. So that was too bad for Art because we loved him. But but for the most part, we didn't pay for a coke. We got free coke. We didn't have much else, but uh, we did have free coke. <laughs> but other than that, it was pretty real. Scott, I know you got to catch a flight. We really appreciate yeah. appreciate you doing this uh, from the airport, and we'll see you back here in Oakland. And uh, it's always fun to look back at one of the great moments in A's history. Absolutely. Uh, sorry I didn't have more time, Chris, but uh, have fun watching this club because they're pretty exciting too. Mark, how you doing? It's Chris Townsend and Scott Reese with A's Cast Live. We appreciate you taking the time. How are you? 
I'm good, man. How are you? Uh, we're doing great as today, 17 years ago today, you were part of a team that set a record winning 20 straight games. And uh, we're going to talk to Scott Hatterberg later in the show, but just Take us through that night, Kansas City. You get out to the lead, you give it up, and then for the third straight day, you would have a walk-off hit. What a special run that was for your ball club. Yeah, it really was. It was, uh, I mean, to be honest, there's not a whole lot of the game I remember other than kind of what you said. I mean, I remember being up by a whole bunch with, with Hudson on the mound, and you're thinking, oh, here we go, we're just going to cruise win this 20th game and we'll move on to Minnesota. And, uh, you know, before you know it, here come a few more runs. And I remember Huddy getting taken out of the game. And then all of a sudden a few more runs happen. And next thing you know, I think somebody, I think somebody hit a homer to tie it. I don't, I don't remember specifically, but I remember just going, are you kidding me? They just tied the game. Like this is this game. And then obviously Scotty hit that homer, man. And it was, uh, I remember all of us celebrating, and, you know, I tell people, wins, I think, 18, 19, and 20. We, from the field up to the clubhouse, there's maybe 30, 40 steps that we have to go up to. And I just remember all three days just running up those steps with some of the other players just going, are you kidding me? Did that really just happen? You know, because all three of those wins were so crazy and so dramatic that, um, but obviously, Hatterberg's probably the craziest of them all. Mark, you don't see a lot of even 10-game win streaks in baseball. 20 is such an incredible number. Was there a point along the way where you and your teammates started to really realize, you know, hey, this is a thing, and, and these games are, are verging on historic now the way we're going? Um, yeah, but it wasn't until those, those last few because if I remember correctly, I think up until win 14 – it was everything was about whether we were going to go on strike or not. So those first, you know, wins, let's say eight to 14 weren't even talked about on TV. They weren't even really written about that much other than, Oh, A's won again, because we came down to the deadline and we settled it that the, there was a new agreement right before that, that last night. And then obviously 15 and 16 got a little bit of attention. And then Tejada had those couple walk-offs that, you know, ultimately, helped them win the MVP and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was uh, all the attention and all the hype of it didn't happen until the last few wins. Yeah, I forgot about that because you're right. 18 and 19 were the walk-offs for Tejada, Hatterberg in 20. But I forgot yeah. that we were talking labor strife, and we were like, "Oh my God, you can't, you can't, <laughs> can't do stop it, it now. You can't do what they did <laughs> back in 1994. It'll kill the it'll kill the sport." Yeah, so all of the attention was on that. And I remember us being in – I remember another – the only other win in that whole thing I remember, I want to say it was somewhere maybe around 10, 11-ish. We were in Detroit, and we got down a whole – I think Aaron Harang started a game and didn't have a very good game, and we were down a whole bunch in that game, and we made a crazy comeback. Uh, I remember John Mabry hit a big homer, uh, and we ended up winning that game. But like I said – Everything, even all the stuff in the clubhouse was all about, okay, what's latest on negotiations? What's this? Because we didn't know what was going to happen. So there really wasn't any attention on our streak until it got to about 16. And then obviously with Tejada's walk-offs, it just blew it up even that much more. So you win 20, back-to-back-to-back walk-offs. You're in this crazy mode. 20 is such a nice round number. 
but nobody wants this thing to end, right? What was it like, you know, carried over to the next day? And, you know, obviously it ends at 20, but but was there is a disappointment? Was there any sense of relief that you can kind of go about, get back to sort of business as usual? Or what, what was the feeling when the, the streak finally came to an end? Um, I've told a bunch of – I don't know if you guys have heard this story or not. I've told this before. David and – and we still get all over David Justice for it, but he gets up prior to the game, and DJ had been on a, you know, a handful of those really good Yankee teams and this and that. And DJ kind of gets up in the clubhouse before the game and goes, hey, guys, I just want to let you guys know something. And we're, this is in Minnesota before the possible 21st win. And he gets up and kind of gives a little talk like, guys – this is amazing. I've been on a lot of successful teams with the Indians, the Yankees, whatever it is. What we're doing right now is special. You know, take this in. Enjoy it. You know, let's go out and do our thing and this and that. And he gives this really cool speech, and we go out and lose. And <laughs> he, com- he comes in. He comes into the clubhouse right after the game. And I'm not going to be able to say exactly what he said, but he essentially said, That'll be the last time I'm ever getting up and talking ever again. <laughs> and he and we turned on music, and you never would have thought that we lost. Because in a way, it was, hey, guys, we just did something really cool. Let's enjoy it. Instead of sitting here pouting in the, in the clubhouse, let's just enjoy it. So we basically reacted after that game as we maybe would another type of win throughout the season. You know, we didn't uh, – we, nobody was really too upset other than po- probably Corey Lytle because he's the one who started that game. But um, it was just one of those things. I, I believe Brad Radke started for the Twins, and he dealt. So there really wasn't there really wasn't anything we could really do in that game. He pitched great. You know, I, I asked this of Scott Hatterberg earlier today when we uh, taped an interview with him. You know, when you're going through it, you may not really know how special it is. But after that, because of your group and what was going on, a best-selling book was written about your group, Moneyball. (laughs) Then Brad Pitt is putting together a movie that was up for an Oscar. When you look back now, even though you guys didn't end up winning a World Series, but your group really was so special. How do you you look back on that group and that run that led to a best-selling book and an Oscar nomination for a movie? Well, I, th- I think it's the word you just used, special. I mean, the major- not the majority, a good part of that team, I'm still in contact with a lot of those guys. I, we still text. We still talk from time to time. A few of the guys I still see all the time. Um, imagine if we would have won a World Series with that team. I mean, that would have been, been crazy, you know? It's just it's, – it's one of those things where – but I almost look back at a handful of those teams, and it's – in a way, it's kind of disappointing because we were so talented and we were so good, and we were, but we were so young. And I realized that when I got traded to St. Louis, that very veteran-type team, that's what made me realize how important some of those older guys who'd been there, done it, had playoff success, just how important they were come playoff time, which – we never had in any of those Oakland on any of those Oakland teams. First of all, Mark, for, for the record, there was not enough Mark Mulder in the movie. Okay, let's just get that out there. Right now. <laughs> um, but, but that said, you know, I'm sure you were asked this a hundred times when the film came out. But I'm curious, as somebody who's seen it multiple times, how close did they encapsulate the spirit of that run and that win streak and how that movie ended? Um, 
Well, first and foremost, I thought the I thought the movie was good. I, I thought they did a good job. I mean, there were so many things in the movie that were uh, blown out of proportion. <laughs> right. Blown out of proportion, I guess, or made up. You know, I mean, but it's we weren't paying for drinks in the clubhouse. Um, <laughs> you know, th- things like that. I mean, there were a lot of things that they showed that I personally interactions with players. Uh, whether it's David Justice in the batting cage. I mean, some, a lot of those things never happened. You know, so there, there could have been a conversation, but the, it, it wasn't like that. So some of those things were made up. Um, but to be fair, I thought the movie was great. Um, I've only ever watched it one time. Um, I, no reason. Just I thought it was good. I'm not a big person who rewatches movies. But it was, uh, it was fun to watch. And, you know, they did a good job. But a lot of the stuff... I think with our team and things like that, it's hard to really put that into a movie to where the people at home can understand just how close of a team we were. I'd probably say the number one thing is how they kind of made Art Howe look like the villain. Right. And there was no way he was the villain. You guys loved Art. Art was great. Art was, Art, I mean, he's one of the, he was one of the nicest people in baseball that I'd ever met, you know, and but that's that's my whole point is so many things in that movie were made to be something they weren't you know i mean you can sit there and say okay art was mad when billy got rid of the guys that he wanted to play or you know so that art was forced to play certain guys whatever it is but that that how it all went down with art was not his personality and it wasn't the way he acted and it wasn't the way he carried himself so who should have played you in the movie Oh jeez, I have I have no idea. <laughs> when when I, we when you do the sequel, who's going to play Mark Mulder? I, I don't think anybody will play Mark Mulder because it really <laughs> wasn't that important. <laughs> <laughs> well, your time here in Oakland was so special, and, and let's end on this: Hudson Mulder and Zito. You guys are always going to be linked together. What was a what was yeah. it like to be a part of that trio? Um. Wow. Um, I would probably say, you know, the, the small amount of success that I did have um, in my short-ish career, I wouldn't have had if it wouldn't have been for them because we pushed each other each and every day. Um, nobody really wanted to be that weak link in the rotation. I think because the three of us were so looked at as, as one almost that, you know, they put – we they put more pressure on me, but in a good way. Um, we could all learn from each other, even though all three of us pitched kind of completely different. Um, it was the way you watch them handle certain situations, the way they go about their business day in, day out. And um, I, I just appreciate that time. We, we had a great time together. Like I said, the whole team, not the three of us, we were all young. We were all having success together. And uh, it made for some great years. Hey, Mark, we always appreciate the time. Love having you on. Hit them straight down there in the Valley of the Sun, and we'll catch up with you yep. later on. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, it is an absolute honor to have on an A's legend. What this man did as a coach for the Oakland Athletics, and he's doing it now with the Atlanta Braves as they're having a fantastic year. Ron Washington is with us. Wash, always great to bring you back with the Athletics and the Green and Gold. How have you been? I've been great, and it's always nice to talk baseball that uh, the Green and Gold can hear. 
So we celebrated yesterday the 17th anniversary of the 20-game winning streak and got a chance to talk to Scott Hatterberg about the pinch hit home run. We got a chance to speak with uh, Mark Mulder and what he recalled because, you know, it just wasn't that 20th game. You had the, the two walk-offs from Miguel Tejada in game 18 and 19 of the streak. When you look back 17, later, 17 years later, what do you look at most fondly about that winning streak, your time with the A's? Well, I look at the when it begins, um, you know, David Justice got on the bus when we first left, and I think we went to Kansas City. And he said, we'll be going on a 10-game uh, road trip, and we should come back with nine wins. And we came back with 10. And we came home for a seven-game homestand, a six-game homestand. And he said, shoot, we should get five out of six. We won six in a row. And from that point on, you know, it just came down to us just playing the type of baseball that we've been playing, pitching the ball, catching the ball, and getting timely hitting. And that's exactly what it took through the whole 20 games, pitching, defense, and timely hitting. You know, what was, what was fascinating yesterday about Mark Mulder was Mark said it wasn't until he got to St. Louis did he realize the veteran presence on that ball club in, in really 01, 02, how much it helped young guys like him. You know, we, we think of the, the, the star young players, you think about – you know, the Cy Young with, with Zito and Tejada being the MVP. But talk about how the veteran guys, like Justice, really helped these young guys get over the top. Well, you know, he brought that presence. I, I think we already had a, a young core that uh, knew how to play together, and they played together in the minor leagues. And, um, you know, we just had an attitude that every night we took the, the field that we had a chance simply because of the pitching that we had and the pride that we took in catching the ball. And, um, you know, from that point on, you know, we used to just play and then get one base hit through the whole game, and we'll win it. And uh, that's what, that exactly what, what we were about. We were about playing nine innings, and whatever it took to win it, we did it. And every day we came to the ballpark, we came to the ballpark to prepare to do just that, win ball games. And talk about the craziness of that win, the 20th straight win, where you have the big lead, you got Tim Hudson on the mound, you think this is a no-brainer, all of a sudden KC comes back, and then you have the moment of Scott Hatterberg hitting the biggest home run of his career. Well, to be honest with you, um, we never felt comfortable. We really never felt comfortable because of the way the game was flowing. And then um, Mike uh, had a big first baseman they had I can't think of his name when he hit the grand slam Sweeney uh, Mike Sweeney closer. Sweeney it was Sweeney he hit the grand slam and put him closer and you know then we begin to say okay we got to score more runs we got to score more runs but you know the thing about those guys they always did what was necessary and um so when Hatterberg stepped up there and then hit the home run that that, that won that 20th game for us um to be honest with you it was a great feeling but it certainly wasn't anything that we was concerned about. We still felt like we was going to win that game. But he put the icing on the cake, and that was tremendous. And little did we know at that time that this team was being looked at and was going to have a best-selling book written about it. And then after the, the book Moneyball, then you're going to have Brad Pitt playing Billy Bean, and it's an Oscar-nominated film 
You guys had no idea how big this was going to get. When you look back, how crazy it, you and Scott Hatterberg, both playing a big part in the book and the movie. Well, you know, you look back on it, and it was one of those times where early in the year, we wasn't so sure who we were, you know. Uh, we had made so many changes, but uh, one thing we had in that clubhouse was togetherness. Uh, we had accountability uh, toward each other in that clubhouse, and that's the one thing that kept us going. We was responsible for each other. It wasn't always the same guy that's doing it. Although one night, Miguel, two nights in a row, Miguel Tejada came through, Eric came through. I mean, it was the whole team that came through, but it all started on that mound with our pitching staff. And to be honest with you, you never thought that uh, today, 17 years, as you say, we would still be talking about it. Matter of fact, Katrina destroyed my uh, plaque with the 20 victories on it. And um, when I came there as a Texas Ranger manager, uh, they renewed the plaque for me. So that was a wonderful feeling also. Well, of course, because uh, what you mean in A's history as a coach and, and helping so many guys, you've been so instrumental. And we'll definitely get into Marcus Simeon a little bit later. How did you feel about your portrayal in the movie and, and also in the book? Well, you know, the only thing about it that, that, that confused me, I never did my work on the sideline. You know, the guy that played me, he was on the sideline uh, yelling out to these guys when he was catching, catching balls, calling them a picking machine. But uh, doing workouts, it wasn't doing the game. That was the only thing. Other than that, you know, when you make a film, some things are embellished. But the true story behind it was that uh, Billy Bean and his group used to just get guys and bring in our clubhouse that everyone thought was finished, and they would have super years with us because of the way our clubhouse was constructed. Um, as I said, we was already in our clubhouse as being accountable to everyone in that clubhouse and everyone that came in. They fell in line. You know, when we when we got uh, big Frank Thomas, when we got David Justice, we got Tim Rain. Um, we even brought back Richard Henderson one year. Nothing ever changed in our demeanor and how we went about our business. And, um, you know, that had a lot to do with the way Billy Bean and them ran the organization, the way Mocker and, and, and Art Howell ran the, the, the team itself, and the, the responsibilities that the players took on. Um, it was just a wonderful time. And, um, you know, I know they can say that we never went further than the first half, except for one year we, we ended up going to Detroit and they ended up sweeping us. But from that point on, it was everyday business. And you have to love that situation. I know I did. I enjoyed every year that I've ever had in Oakland. So you played with Billy Bean and then you worked with Billy Bean. Talk about your relationship with him because you guys go way back together. What I love most about Billy is his honesty. You always knew where he was coming from. You always knew how he felt. He never hid his feelings. He always wore them out on his sleeve. And most of the time, he was right about the things he complained about. So, um, and and he was a he was a tremendous ball player. He never made it to the point where everybody thought he would make it. But uh, you know, the first time I met him, he came in. He met us in New York. He went five for five. He, we just had gotten him from um, I think we had gotten him from the Mets. And um, But, you know, things just never went right as far as the superstardom that he had when, when he came over there. But I tell you what, he certainly know how to handle individuals, and he's a person that I owe a lot to. And I'll never forget that. You know, let's talk about some of the guys that, that you had here that had great success in the infield. And we, we think of Eric Chavez, one of the greatest defensive third basemen that we have ever seen. He gave you one of his gold gloves because of all the work and how you mentored him. Talk about what it was like coaching Eric. 
Well, you know, the first time that I got a chance to meet Eric, I got in a list from the minor league director, uh, and he had all kind of things on his list that Eric couldn't do. And I said, well, if he can't do these things, what is he doing in the big league? So the way I handled things, I went to Eric, and I wanted to get it from straight from Eric. And he said, well, if I catch the ball, my problem is I throw. So the only thing that I ever worked with Eric on is his footwork. And from that point on, the rest is Eric. Uh, he deserved all the credit for all the gold gloves that he got. I remember one day they said, do you think Eric can get a gold glove? I said, I think Eric can get a gold glove, but Eric got to want that gold glove, not because I think he can get that gold glove. Well, Eric went out there, and he put in the work, you know. Nobody knows. Uh, we hit the field every morning at 8 o'clock. Eric was out there every morning at 730. Uh, he would get to the ballpark at 530 in the morning. He would make sure that his back, you know, he was having problems with his back, but he was making sure – that his back was always able to go out there and do what he had to do. And he was out on the field at 7.30 every morning. Eric earned everything that he got out of it. And I remember one time someone mentioned to me after uh, when he got late in his career about, well, he's always hurt. I said, holy, you're going to look at Eric first six, seven, eight years. He played every day. We could not pry him out of that lineup. And when we lost Mark McGuire and then we lost uh, Jason Giambi, Eric stepped up and became the leader of that club. And um, he's a wonderful man. Uh, he's a wonderful person. Um, you know, he did a lot for that organization. And people don't know how often he played hurt. And um, that's the thing I admired about him the most. He never complained about anything. All he ever did was show up. He deserved everything he got. And if he wouldn't have hurt his back, I think he would have had 10, 11 straight gold gloves without a doubt. You know, you think about that era, and that era had so many great shortstops, and not enough was said about Miguel Tejada. Everybody wants to talk about Jeter and Arod and Omar Garcia Parra. We know how good Miggy was offensively, but talk about how good he was also defensively. Another one that put in the work, put in the time. Um, he worked his butt off. He was a tremendous shortstop. He had tremendous range. And the one thing we had to make sure with Miguel was he would go left and right and get balls and wouldn't finish it. And the one thing I always told him, anybody can go left and right and catch a ball, but those that are going to be recognized are those that can finish the plays. And he worked, and he became a tremendous shortstop. And as you said, he never got the credit for it because of he was always fighting at Derek Jeter's. But uh, he meant a lot to our organization the years that he was there, and he was a big part of all the winning that we done there. And um, he's always going to be someone that will be huge in my heart. And um, I'm just happy. I'm just sad that when he left Oakland and he went to uh, Baltimore, things didn't continue in that direction. Well, and, and then probably one of your greatest successes is a, is a guy that we see every single day. And I'm so proud of Marcus Simeon. I think we all are because we watched how when you showed up, and you basically broke him down and got him to go from scratch. And the fact that Marcus worked so hard with you every day and he, he did it in front of everybody, where some big leaguers would not want to do it in front of everybody and feel so vulnerable, Marcus did it in front of everybody every single day, and he has truly turned himself into one of the best shortstops in the game how much do you just admire him as a person for letting you come in and change him into one of the great infielders in the game now? Well, it's, it's a bunch of things that happen. Number one, Billy Bean wanted him to be a shortstop. He and Dave Force. And number three, 
you definitely can't forget about Bob Melvin. Bob Melvin allowed me to come in there and be a part of that family. And number four, Marcus, the first time I met him in Tampa Bay, I told him if he want to ever reach where he's capable of being, he's going to have to put in the work. And that work's going to be consisting of him coming out here every single day, going through the basics of what it takes to be an infielder, learning all the nuances of being a shortstop and an infielder. And if he's willing to do that, um, I can help him. I can help him get where he want to get. But I can't help him if he's not willing to put in the time. Well, the rest is history. Marcus put in the time. And the thing that I admire the most is all that time we put together, he's held on to it because I'm no longer there. And as a, as a, as a teacher or a coach, um, all you can do is give your knowledge and your wisdom. But if your pupil cannot apply it, your wisdom and knowledge goes for naught. Well, my wisdom and knowledge didn't go for naught because Marcus Simmons is that type of person that applied, that was willing to work. He wasn't ashamed of, of being seen, and he did it. And he deserved all the credit for it. All I did was put the bricks down there, and he followed the road. Well, I tell you what, he's going to get a big contract coming up here. He's going he's gonna to need to at least take you to dinner. Well, he always do that anyway. He's a, he's a very special man. He's a very special daddy, and he's a very special player. And I think Oakland is uh, beginning to see that. A lot of times when you put in the time, it may not look like things are going to happen, but if you put in the time and you're serious about putting in the time and you're dedicated to putting in the time, good things happen, and good things are happening for the Oakland A's and Marcus Simeon, that's for certain. Let's end on this. The ball club you're with now, the Atlanta Braves, you got a lot of talent. you got a lot of young talent. And we're seeing a resurgence. And Josh Donaldson, you know, a guy that we love here in Oakland. And right now you're leading your division. You're going to be going to the playoffs. Just talk about what just, you know, how Atlanta has changed and they have become such a strong team in the NL East. Well, the, the one thing that always comes up is the talk during spring training that we didn't do anything over the winter to strengthen our club. Well, what strengthen our club is, the basis of what you're talking about, our young players. Our young players have gotten better. They have worked their tail off, and they have gotten better. And this is a tremendous group, and this group, I'm only comparing them right now, and I'm the only one that can do that. I'm comparing them to the group I had in Oakland, um, the, the, the Chavis, the Miguel, the Mark Ellis, the Jason Giambis, and uh, the Scott Hatterbergs and all those guys on the infield. Uh, they came and put in the time, man, and these young kids put in the time, they don't question what you're trying to do. They just show up every day and go about their business. And the the results is us being back in first place. And we're back in first place simply because of our young talent. They have gotten better. And that's the one thing that I think any any coach, any manager should be proud of is that they'll use to get better. I was gotten better, and they're the reason we are where we are, along with guys like Donaldson, Freddie Freeman, Mark Cakes before he got hurt. We brought in um, um, McCain, the catcher, who's a, who's a winner. Uh, so when you put all of those type of veterans with those young kids that come to play every day, the results is what you're looking at right now. Uh, we haven't accomplished anything yet. We're in a good position. We have to play the schedule out. And I can tell you this, these kids will play the schedule out. They're not looking ahead. They're looking at one thing today. Wash, you will always be an A's legend. Thank you so much for taking the time, and good luck to your Braves the rest of the way in the postseason, and we'll catch up with you in the offseason. 
Okay, and thank you for having me on, and go A's. He's one of the greatest managers of all time, a World Series champion in 1997, a three-time manager of the year, 1990, 1992, 2006, gold medal in the World Baseball Classic. Jim Leland joins us. Jim, it's an honor to have you on A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. Thank you for taking the time. No, no problem. Glad to be on. You know, when we think about managers, you know, we'd love your opinion on the manager we have here in Bob Melvin because the organization was not doing well before Bob got here. And Bob really showed when you have the right manager, a guy that knows how to communicate, a guy that knows how to ha- manage people, a guy that knows how to deal with the front office, boy, it can change things and, and, and really start a winning culture. Well, I don't think there's any question about that. Bob and I were together over in the Tiger organization many, many years ago when he was a player. I was managing the instructional league and, you know, always a student of the game, you know, played in the big league some, obviously. And uh, I think without uh, without a question, uh, one of the best managers in all of baseball today and has been for several years. I think a lot of times, you know, back east here, we don't always see the Oakland A's a lot or the Angels or the Dodgers, you know, because of the time change so much. So I think I think that's part of the reason that he, you know, he might not get recognized as much as he should. Uh, he just won a Chuck Tanner Award here a couple of years ago in Pittsburgh. I went to the dinner here in Pittsburgh to honor, in honor of Chuck Tanner, and Bob was the recipient of that award. He's a great manager. There's no question about that. I think he, he's without without a doubt one of the best in all of baseball. Were there quite a few players that you had over the years that, as they were playing for you, where you kind of looked and went, you know what? If that guy actually does want to stay in baseball. I can see that guy as manager quality. Well, you never know about manager because, you know, there's only 30 of those jobs and they're, they're obviously hard to get. So you never really, uh, you know, think so much about manager per se, but you think about obviously staying in the game in some capacity. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think you do that a lot. You know, you, you get to know the personality of a player. You get to know there's a lot of players that, you know, watch the game more intensely than other players. That's just the way it is. That's in the minor leagues or the major leagues. There's just certain guys that are, uh, you know, it doesn't mean the other guys aren't into it, but they, they're looking at what the manager does more. They're studying the game maybe a little bit more where you play the infield and all those kind of things. And I think Bob was certainly one of those guys. And you see so many of the managers are catchers. And, of course, you were a catcher back in the day. Why do you think it is that catchers sometimes make the best managers? Well, I think one of the things that pops to your mind right away is the fact that the catcher is, is a guy that caught all the pitchers and, and called all the pitches in those days. Yeah, you know, we, we called our own pitches and, and things of that nature. And I think that, you know, you're, you're kind of a student of the game and you learn how to handle the pitching staff. And I think that's the biggest part about managing, in my opinion, is knowing how to handle your pitching staff, uh, knowing how to run a bullpen, uh, you know, knowing when to take the starter out, when to leave him in. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, there's a little bit of a knack to that, and I think you get some experience to that because of the fact that you were a catcher. And you kind of recognize maybe a little bit quicker than some other guys on the team. You know, when a guy's lost it, when he's doing something a little bit different, you know, when his mechanics just aren't right, obviously you have a pitching coach there to help you. But I think the the fact that the catcher caught pitchers all his life and called pitches all his life, I, I think that's got a lot to do with it. And I think about communication because we have analytics, we've got numbers, we've got Statcast, we've we've got we TrackMan, we've got so much information and so much video out there that sometimes I think even in modern day baseball we forget how communication between the manager and the players 
where they always know where they stand, good or bad, that there's great communication. Talk about that through your career and even today, how that is a skill and a must for a good manager. Well, number one, I think that people underrate, underestimate how difficult the manager's job is. I think people have a tendency to think anybody can just do that job today because of all the numbers they put in front of you. And, and they, you know, they try to, you can just try to make you a robot manager. That just doesn't happen. Management is very difficult. Believe me, I did it for 33 years, 22 in the major leagues. It's very difficult. You know, guys upset they're not getting play in time. Guys upset they have other problems going on. Whatever it may be, you're dealing with those people on a daily basis. And I think the biggest thing is being there for the players, you know, when they're going bad. Because when a player's going good, you know, they got the press, they got the media, they got the fans, they got the general manager, they got everybody on their side. They really don't need the manager. But when you need the manager is when the team's going bad. That's when you need the manager. I think Bob Melvin's very good at that. I think he does a good job of putting out fires. He handles things. Uh, he, he's just terrific. But I, I think people underestimate what a difficult job managing is. It, it's a very hard job, trust me. And you and you were in an era when guys started making real money. I mean, some big-time money, and you managed some guys with some big-time egos. So you also have to be able to manage those guys. Well, I think, you know, you're in the people business. That's what you are when you're a manager. And you got to – you got to, you know, you got to have the same rules, the same parameters, but you got to go about it different with each player. I mean, to, you know, to get the best results out of one player may not be the same way you do it with another player. You have to, you have to know all those things, and that's that's what you're talking about. Your line of communications, uh, you know, is very important. Uh, you know, I think respect is very important. Uh, you know, and, and you know, you're really in charge of the organization on the field. I mean, you're not the general manager, obviously, you're not the owner, but on the field. You're really responsible for the organization's results. And, you know, some teams right now are rebuilding, such as the Tigers and things like that. But, you know, you're basically in charge of that. And that's your responsibility. And, you you know, you want to make sure that, number one, you're representing yourself in the right way and, and making sure that, you know, players are doing the right things, that they're professional, the way they go about their business. So, you know, you can talk about uh, information, statistical information, analytical information, We've had that stuff for a long time, if you want to know the truth. Uh, there's more of it today. They focus a little bit more on it today, or at least that's what comes across the media. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's as accurate as everybody thinks it is. But, you know, we've had that stuff for a long time. But you got to be careful. Information's great. But you can't get so consumed in information that you forget about the human element and the player himself. And I think that's very dangerous. You're back with the Detroit Tigers, and we're going to see the Tigers coming into town, and it's going to be three games. Then we have the the suspended game that we're going to replay, so we're going to basically have two games tomorrow. And, and you talk about a rebuild. Rebuilds are not easy, and we're seeing a lot of teams go through it right now. So how do you think it's going so far for the Tigers? Well, I think it's pretty much on schedule. I think what happens with a rebuild is uh, when you're really struggling like we are, you know, people are going to say, they all have a tendency to say, well, we understand it's a rebuild, but we didn't think it was going to be this bad. So it's always a tough ticket when you're going through it. Uh, but, you know, you can't change in the middle of the stream. you got to stay the course, and you got to believe in your people. you got to believe in your players. you got to believe in your minor league system. you got to believe in your scouts, your analytical people, and you got to stay the course. Uh, you can't try to appease some people for, you know, a month or two. You, you have to go about it, and you have to be – sold on what you're trying to do, what you're trying to attempt. You know, Kansas City did a good job of it, went to the World Series, won. Houston's done a good job of it. So you just have to stay the course, and I think that's the most important thing. 
when we start talking about front offices, how, how much are you with the front office? And just tell us exactly what your role is. Well, I, I, I'm the, you know, I guess it's a title. <laughs> I really don't, I'm not much on titles, but I'm kind of a, you know, special advisor to the general manager. Uh, I go to spring training uh, for the entire spring. I go to every game, home and road. Uh, you know, I watch the players play. I watch the team play. I, you know, I, I look at the pitchers. I go over to the minor leagues. I look at our minor league players uh, during the season. I go to our double-A, triple-A team to look at our prospects uh, develop. Uh, I, I go see the big club when I go to Cleveland. Once in a while, I go to Detroit. Uh, you know, it's not my show anymore, so I try to stay out of the way. I don't go to Detroit very much. But, uh, you know, I'm involved just the way I should be involved. And I'm really kind of a sounding board for the general manager if he wants to bounce something off me or – you know, a, a trade, li- trade line, something like that, or I was up for the trading deadline. and So I, I participate, but yet I stay out of the way, and I, I really don't offer a whole lot unless I'm asked. And if I'm asked, then I give my opinion. Yeah, the, 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 your, your title is Jim Leland. That's all you need, right? <laughs> well, I mean, basically, that you know, I, I'm just there. Like I said, I, I love it. I, I love the Tiger organization. I signed there as a kid and ended up getting the, getting a chance to go back there and manage that team and, uh, you know, we have some great, wonderful games with the Oakland Athletics and the playoffs, great games, and it's been a thrill. So I, I love it. I still like it. And, you know, I watch the Tigers every day. Sometimes I watch two games. Sometimes I do watch Oakland at night or, or the Angels because Brad Austin is there. He's a friend of mine now, managing there, and Bob and I have known each other for a long time. So, But, you know, we don't get to see him as much back on the East Coast. I fall asleep usually about the fourth, fifth inning. Yeah, I, I, yeah, no question. Our, our, bless him when our games are running long. Want to talk about your good friend Tony LaRusso. We just had him on the program recently. His, his 1989 team, we celebrated it, one of the great teams of all time. He's also going into the A's Hall of Fame. He's one of the great managers of all time. Just talk about the greatness of Tony LaRusso and your guys' relationship. Well, uh, you know, Tony and I managed against each other in minor leagues, and then uh, he went to the major leagues that, that same year in, in 1979. He went up to the major leagues and became the manager of the White Sox. Uh, I stayed back in AAA with the Tigers at the time, and a couple of years later when he was looking for a third base coach, he remembered me, and we had become kind of acquaintances. I don't think we were real good friends at the time. You know, we were acquaintances, but we got to know each other over the years, and we obviously became very close obviously one of my best friends, one of my mentors. Uh, he took me to big leagues as third base coach. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of people in the minor leagues that, you know, that made me a manager, but Tony LaRusso made me a major league manager. There's no question about that. So I'm forever indebted to him for that. And, you know, his record speaks for itself. He's possibly the greatest manager of all time, if you want to know the truth. I don't know. You know, I don't get into those kind of arguments about old players and younger players. But uh, he's just, Tony was one of those managers that, you know, you can manage two or three days and really not have to do much. Sometimes the, the flow just goes just right, and there's, there's, there's not really anything major. But the good managers are always ready for that situation that comes up uh, and so you don't get caught sleeping or caught napping. And Tony LaRusso never got caught napping. He was oh, he might go three or four straight days, not have any major decisions, and all of a sudden something popped up. He was always ready for it. Uh, he was so prepared, and he never got caught flat-footed. Uh, you know, he's just a credit to the game. He's a, he's a credit to the Oakland A's, the White Sox, Cardinals, obviously, and Hall of Fame manager. Yeah, we got a lot of interesting changes going on in our game right now, whether it's the ball and record home runs 
whether it's the record number of bullpen guys being used. If you could change one thing that's trending in baseball right now, what would you change? I would change two things. I would change the uh, – it makes me sick. The five-inning starting pitchers, that really bothers me, and the strikeouts, that really bothers me. Uh, I understand, you know, the big home run guys have always struck out. There's no question about that. We understand that. But there's too many little guys striking out. It's not good for the game. It's not good for winning games late in the game when you have to execute fundamentally a fundamental hitting, a certain type of approach of hitting. I, I know home runs are attractive. I love them when I manage, just like everybody else does. But it's not all right to strike out in a lot of situations. There's a lot of times when you see everybody says it's okay to strike out, but it's not. You see a general manager sitting up in the box with a man on third and less than two outs, and a guy pops up or strikes out, two guys strike out, they're pounding their fists, they're upset. So, I mean, it's not okay. And the, and the idea of pitchers, uh, you know, throwing five innings with 100 pitches, to me, this is ridiculous. Your best bullpen is a seven-inning starting pitcher. That's your best bullpen. That's never going to change. They can talk about all you want, and the relievers are getting roughed up a little bit more this year because they're being used a lot, and the hitters are seeing them a lot more. It's not good for the game. When you, when you look at the teams that are going to go, you're going to see teams that have good starting pitchers. You look over there at Houston with Cole and Verlander and the horses they got over there. That's what you're going to see. Last year with Boston, with they had Sale and they had Price. They had, a, they had all these guys. So I think that those are the two things that I really dislike about the game right now. Five-inning pitchers with 100 pitches after four and two-thirds. And the other thing that bothers me is they, they leave the game four to two in the fifth inning after the fifth inning, winning four to two or losing four to two. And the media people and the announcers say, well, he gave his team a chance to win. Four or five innings pitching and giving up two or three runs, four runs, is not a good performance with 100 pitches. I, I don't care what anybody tells me. That is not a good performance. And to say that, well, you gave your team a chance to win, I, I think that's real misleading. Jim, thank you so much for the time. An honor to have you on the program, and we'd love to do this again. Well, thank you very much for having me. He's one of the greatest big game pitchers of all time. He's a Hall of Famer. And the great Jack Morris is with us here on A's Cast Live. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm enjoying this wonderful weather that you guys uh, take for granted every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the problem is we got to pay a lot of money for it. That's the only <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> that's the only problem. How are you? Well, I'm doing great, you know, I'm watching a lot of baseball games and uh, get paid to do it, so you can't uh, really complain about something like that. Uh, it's been challenging with a team that's struggled the way the Tigers have, but uh, glad to be out here in Oakland, watch a team that is trying to push for a postseason berth. Yeah, how odd is it? We had, you know, they, they passed it out to us earlier today. It's yeah. the, the box score of, of the game that was suspended. Right. Uh, this is supposed to be a Tiger Stadium, but yet we're here in Oakland. <laughs> Welcome to Comerica. <laughs> <laughs> Which I really like. Beautiful ballpark, by the way. I love Comerica. Yeah, it's uh this is definitely an, a unique uh, situation today, uh, picking up a game. I, I think the most unique part about it is it's the first game I can ever remember that there won't be a national anthem played before it starts. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah we're just going to go right it's out already and get been it played. Going. It's already been played. So when, when you think about your time in the big leagues and the kind of player that you were, you were such a big game pitcher. And what did the big moment always mean to you? Because you seem to always rise to the top. You know, I didn't always. I mean, I made mistakes in 93. I, I didn't uh, necessarily, 92, I shouldn't say, against back-to-back uh, -back years against uh, uh, Atlanta. I, I gave up a home run that I don't want to think about too much. But I always loved 
the idea of playing in postseason because you work so hard all year long and then all your colleagues go home and we all get to watch one team. And I, I really like the fact that they were watching me and said I was watching them. That was, you know, baseball players are pretty much into what they do. And uh, to know that the rest of the baseball world was home and you got the chance to shine and and do your thing, that was always fun for me. Yeah, like I said, I, I was there in the 1984 World Series when you guys took on the Padres, and that 84 team that you guys had, you got out to that set, what was it, 35-5, and five, something like that, yep. that great start, and, it, and you just blew everybody away. You're truly one of the best baseball teams of all time. Talk about what it was like playing on that team. You know, we were all relatively young. We hadn't had any guys become famous baseball players yet, uh, you know, Several of us got a lot of recognition after that and because of that year. But 84 was a culmination of a bunch of guys who had taken our whooping for a few years at the major league level and finally looked across the diamond and said, that's enough. We can play with anybody and we're going to have to prove it. And it started really at the second half of 83. Uh, Baltimore ended up winning. They went on to win the World Series and we knew we could beat Baltimore. So we came to the spring training facility in 84 with a chip on our shoulders. We never let it go. And I don't think we all really were too enthralled with our record. We really, quite honestly, I don't think any of us really were aware of how historic it was was happening. You know, 17 in a row on the road. I don't know if that'll ever happen again. 35-5, and five, I don't know if that'll ever happen again. But we weren't really into that. We were just trying to play every game meaningful and, and show the other team that when – and the game was over, we're going to win. And I think recently you going into the Baseball Hall of Fame with Alan Trammell, and, and behind you you had one of the great shortstop second base combinations yeah. of all time with, with Lou Whitaker. But talk about what it was like and what it meant to you to go into the Hall of Fame with a guy you played so many games with. Yeah, it's like your little brother, right? I mean, Alan and I started our careers together. We were drafted the same year um, and uh, 13 years together in Detroit. Uh, you know, I feel the same way about Lou. Lou was drafted a year before us, and he played at A ball before, you know, we kind of leapfrogged him. Uh, but Tram and Lou came up together a couple weeks after I had already gotten to the big league. So it was a, a timing thing where we all were our young kids, got our chance, had to learn, had to, had to grow, and uh, finally we kind of started putting it together. And, and when I look back at those two guys, they're everything that, my career became is partly due to what they were able to do. Uh, you know, they were great, the great people. I love them to death. And uh, now it's up to baseball to recognize Lou for what he's accomplished because I think he's a Hall of Famer too. I, I, I definitely agree. One of the great second basemen of all time. And then after Detroit, you go back home. And you win a World Series in your hometown. And John Smoltz was just on the program. You two guys linked up in truly one of the greatest games that has ever played. Talk about winning the World Series and that Game 7, you against John, the Braves, the, the Twins. You had the you had the walk-off with Kirby Puckett in, the, in, in Game 6, and right. then you two guys just going after each other in Game 7. Well, you know, truly for me, it's almost like a fairy tale. It's like a dream come true. You write a book and you fantasize about something, and I think every kid wants to grow up in his own community and, and play for the team that – is in their community and then have a chance to go to World Series and then be the MVP of that World Series. So everything that happened in 91 seemed like it, it was a fairy tale. I think our manager, Tom Kelly, summed it up when he 
looked back and reflected on the World Series, he says it was like a great book. He said chapter one, meaning game one, will grab you, and you couldn't put the book down. And then every chapter after that was a better chapter leading up to the climax of the, the final game. And, you know, the final game, I'm not sure it was the greatest game played. It was my personal best. But a one nothing game in 10 innings, usually people are not really excited about that. And yet there wasn't a person in the stadium or watching on TV that doesn't remember it. It was just that dramatic of a game. Yeah, think about that. You're pitching 10 innings in Game 7 of a World Series. We can't even get guys to go five innings now. (laughs) (laughs) We could. We could. They're just not listening to us. (laughs) You know, a lot of people, I think this season is the season that may flip baseball back because we had so many people talking about bullpens and it's about bullpenning. And now we're seeing just about everybody's bullpen. It really doesn't matter. A lot of the contenders, you look at our bullpen, you look at a lot of teams' bullpens are just getting just chewed up. Yeah. We had uh, Jim Leland on the program yesterday, and Jim said, you know, the best bullpen is a pitcher that goes seven innings and saves the bullpen. Do you think we'll start to see a flip because the bullpen's getting so beat up this year that teams are going to have to realize we got to get more out of our starters? Well, I've always said this, and I suppose I should be careful, but it is my opinion. When ownership realizes they don't have to pay 14 guys in the bullpen, the game will change. You know, we had, uh, when I came to the big leagues, there was – uh, nine or ten pitchers on our on our staff. We had five starters. We had four or five guys in the bullpen. That was our that was our whole team. Now there's, you know, in September call-ups, God only knows how many guys. But you're right about that. Uh, and Sparky might have been ahead of his time because I remember he came to me when I was getting beat up in a lot of games late, and he came to me and says, "I'm not coming to get you today. You're you're going to have to go through this. You're going to have to figure it out." Because I need you to close out games so that I can have you be the guy to rest our bullpen. And so even back in the 80s, uh, Sparky understood the importance of having a rested bullpen uh, when you don't have, you know, a number one or number two guy on the mound. Yeah, Ray Fossey talks about one of the World Series championships for the A's in the 70s. They only used five pitchers the entire World Series. Just shows you how much things have changed. And that's the thing, too, about when you look at, like, your numbers in your career, when we people were talking about the Hall of Fame, it's like no one come – if there was a struggle, no one was come to get you in the fifth or sixth no. inning. You were going to be out there. Well, and, I, you know, I, I had a lot of people compare me to the, some of the great pitchers today and there truly are great pitchers. Their velocity and, and some of the things they're accomplishing is something I never was able to accomplish. But you got to remember that they're getting help every game. They're not finishing the games. And the hardest thing to do is to win and, and do well in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. Those are the toughest innings to do it. That's why they put so much value on a closer. And then I think about your time in Toronto. So you go from Minnesota to – it's like you're winning the World Series every year <laughs> – Toronto, that team, I think that team doesn't get enough love because no. that team you had all kinds of, whether it's Hall of Famers, All-Stars, MVPs. I mean, you had, we recently had a guy you played with, Dave Stewart was on the program, yep. and we talked to Dave. I mean, that team in Toronto you guys had for those two years was spectacular. Talk about your time up north. Well, it was, and I look at talent-wise of all the teams, and I was very fortunate I was on four world championship teams, but our two teams in Toronto were like All-Star teams, and you here in the Oakland area, know two of the guys very well. Dave Stewart, who you just had on, Ricky Henderson. Mm-hmm. He came over and helped us in 93. And, you know, when we had guys like that, uh, you know, it was just already a good team. And 
we get David Cohn, we get Dave Stewart, we get Ricky Henderson, you know, Paul Molitor replaces Dave Winfield. I mean, we just see to, seem to always upgrade, uh, and, you know, we were already good, but we got even better the second year. It's like you guys were an all-star team. We were. It was, uh, it was one of those teams where I'm not sure it was, you know, we played as hard as some of the teams like the Twins and the, and the Tigers that I was on. But we could look up in the seventh inning and know if we had to turn it up a notch or not to win the game because we had that kind of ability to, to turn it up in the fifth, sixth inning if we needed to come back and win. How did the fork ball change your career? Change everything. And it started right down there in that bullpen. That's where I learned it, believe it or not. Really? I, I was in between starts back in about 1981 or 2. I think it was 82. And uh, my teammate, Milt Wilcox, had played with Bruce Sutter. And I was throwing my bullpen in between starts right here in Oakland, and, and Milt asked me if I'd ever thrown a forkball, and I said, I don't even know what it is. So he showed me, he says, that's the pitch that Suter's striking everybody out with. And uh, he looked at my hand and saw I had big fingers, and he said, you want to try it? I said, yeah, let's try it, because my slider was starting to get flat, and I wasn't having a put-away pitch anymore. It was just my slider, I I'd, I'd pri- started learning how to throw it properly, but I didn't have that massive break that I did when I was young. I was throwing more of a high school, what we call a roundhouse slider. Uh, and I started throwing the good crisp slider, but it was flat a lot. And I'd hang it and I'd get beat on it. And it was very similar in speed to my fastball. So he asked me if I wanted to try it. And I threw about 40 pitches and he showed me a couple different grips. I was ready to quit on it. And about the 41st pitch, the bottom fell out of it. And I literally started giggling. I was just like a kid in a candy store. And I felt it. I knew what I had done different on that grip. Uh, I threw about five more, and four of the five just exploded down out of the zone. And I looked at Milton. I said, this is a game changer. This is unbelievable what I can do with a baseball. And two starts later, I was, or two two outings later, I was thrown in a game, and it just got better and better and better. So it went from an okay career to a Hall of Fame career, because of what you learned here in Oakland, and believe it or not, I, I will I will agree with that. It's uh, that's that forkball was a game changer for me, because a hitter couldn't sit fastball and forkball. They had to guess one or the other, and normally, even if they're when my splitter was my forkball was when I was first throwing it, I was the only guy in the American League throwing it. Now Dave Stewart learned it here. A bunch of guys ended up throwing it for a long time. Everybody was throwing it. But for about two years, nobody else in the baseball in American League was throwing it. Mike Scott picked it up in the National League a year later. And I could have told them it was coming. They couldn't have hit it. That's how effective it was. So to have a pitch that you have that kind of confidence in, I mean, it is a game changer. And I don't know why people have gone away from it. I think they'll come back to it. I think they just have to understand the work that's involved in staying strong and your ligaments because so many guys – our max velocity guys and the Tommy John issue with max velocity. Well, with the fork ball, you've really got to work that those tendons in your elbows because it puts more stress. And I can show you off the air how by just spreading your fingers and holding your arm out straight, it puts pressure on your elbow. You can feel it in your elbow. But as long as you build the strength around there and those ligaments are strong, it won't. It won't. Uh, they won't blow. Yeah, I was a pitch, I was a pitcher in college, and I got these little short yeah. fingers, so it didn't work for me. I tried. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I tried the knuckleball. I remember <laughs> Phil Necro showing it to me one day, and I started laughing. I said, "How do you do that?" Yeah. 
I couldn't even, not even close get a feel for it. It's an absolute honor to have you on the program, and thank you so much for coming down. We really appreciate it, and enjoy the weather. Enjoy yeah, the series. I always I, will. And obviously this place probably means a little something to you. You know, I've always had great memories here in Oakland. Uh, this The stadium's changed a little bit. You know, you got the, the big monster out there in center field, but I remember a lot of great nights and great teams uh, from uh, from the – 80s through the 90s, uh, Oakland always had, and even now they have great teams. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.